Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Zach Townsend, the CEO and co-founder of Meanwhile. Meanwhile is the first and only life insurance company denominated in Bitcoin. With Meanwhile, customers can get the same level of protection as traditional life insurance, but their premiums and payouts are denominated in Bitcoin instead of US dollars. In this conversation, Zach and I discuss using technology to improve institutional processes, how life insurance products work, how life insurance can ensure Bitcoin's longevity, the product Meanwhile offers and the types of customers they seek, how life insurance can be a part of a balanced financial portfolio, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Zach, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Zach Townsend, the CEO and co-founder of Meanwhile. How's it going today, Zach? Great, really happy to be here, Dylan. Yeah, me too. Excited to dig into a lot of the things that you've been out there talking about on podcasts and with other content shows that you've been on. But before we delve into a lot of the great things that that you're talking about right now with Meanwhile, we were just chatting that we shared a similar background before working in the crypto and, and blockchain space. I myself was an urban planner and I worked at various different levels of government. We both shared time at the state of California government, which a lot of crypto folks might be hissing at right now or snarling at. <laughs> and I was also... Uh, I, wasn't at, I in... wasn't at the uh, the tax authority, just to be clear. Yeah, me neither. I worked at, at Caltrans <laughs> as a transportation planner, so don't put us out to dry too quickly. But can you just share a little bit about, before you got into the tech side of things, what your background was in the government and political space? Well, sure. You know, when I graduated from college, I actually went to go work at this consulting firm that was all folks who had worked for Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor. So it was in New York City. And we did really like management and data-driven consulting for cities across the country. And as part of that, I got involved in Newark, New Jersey, and I grew up in New Jersey. And Cory Booker was recruiting for someone to come be the head of innovation. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, it really meant anything that needed to get done. So the story I really tell about the nitty gritty is there used to be really a really long line every day with people trying to get their birth certificate, you know, their vital records in the city of Newark. So I just went and created that office and access database. You know, it wasn't like I did anything really super fancy, but it really like cut wait times down <laughs> literally by hours. So I really went all over the city doing things like that. And I got really interested in financial inclusion and financial empowerment and like money stuff and the why do people in West Newark not have bank accounts and payday lending and check cashing and all this stuff because I just got to sign that portfolio randomly. So when Mayor Booker decided to run for Senate, I was like, I don't really have any interest in the Senate. I don't know, you know, really what senators do. So I moved out to San Francisco and very briefly uh, had a job at Stripe. And that, my theory was like, okay, if I care about financial inclusion, like let's work on financial infrastructure. And I was just like on Hacker News and I was like, well, this Stripe company seems cool. 
and they're building financial infrastructure. And I'll be like, good segue into that. And then in what was the best or worst decision of my life, uh, so I guess the worst financial decision, like the best life decision, is I you know, got into YC and left Stripe after a few months and built this company called Standard Treasury. And Standard Treasury was basically like what now we call like banking as a service company. So it was like banking APIs and all this infra between banks and fintechs. And to not make this a whole podcast about my first failed company, you know, I learned a lot and we were absolutely right about the world. And actually multiple people on my team went to found successor companies. So Treasury Prime is literally a joke about Santa Treasury. It's like Treasury, Santa Treasury version two. And there's a, a bank in the UK called Griffin, which is like an AWS for banking. It's founded by another guy on our team. So like we really, we were right, but we were just like too early and we sort of like failed into an acquisition. And that's actually when I got in the sort of first got exposed to crypto. So Brian and Fred at Coinbase wanted to acquire the company and they like needed like payments, risk, compliance people. So, the, you know, there's another like chance, I guess I could have had a hundred million dollars if I did something different. And so I first, like I knew about Bitcoin, but I actually like got my first Bitcoin in a meeting with Brian, like sending me Bitcoin, like on Coinbase. (laughs) But what happened is a bunch of people on the team were like real crypto skeptics and Coinbase was basically like, we can't hire like all seven of you because it'd be such a culture bomb (laughs) because so many of you are crypto skeptics. So they're like, okay, we'll take this half about this other half. And we were just like, okay, we don't want to, we didn't want to leave anyone high and dry. We wanted to like make sure everyone ended up in a good place. So we had another offer at Sil- from Silicon Valley Bank, which is sort of funny to say now, but it was a legit place to go work in 2015. You know, there wasn't any <laughs> signs it was going to blow up. And they wanted the whole team. They wanted to continue the product. They wanted us to own like API banking. So we went to SVB. But I stayed interested in crypto sort of as a, a side thing, like really from that moment. And then when I was at SVB for about a year and was really miserable. I was looking for any way to leave. You know, people who worked for Governor Brown, the governor of California at the time, approached, uh, you know, they were looking for a chief data officer to really build out you know, so that capacity in the state. And they asked Corey's chief of staff for a recommendation. They recommended me. And that's sort of like how I ended up going and doing that gig for a year. Awesome. Anyway, I'll pause. I'm telling my whole life story, which is, wasn't really what you asked, but you just like barreled through like three questions I had lined up. So I think something that will be super interesting to our audience is correct me on my timeframes if I'm wrong, but you you were um, building Standard Treasury from 2012 to 2016. It was really 2012 to 2015, and then SVB bought us, and that was like 2015 2016. Yeah, well, back in the day, like SVB was also one of the only banks that was you know, reputable enough and willing to work with the cryptocurrency space as a whole. Yes, 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 yes. And also, I think they were doing some really, like Coinbase was working with SVB at the time. But, you know, I didn't join SVB because of the, we, I didn't do a lot of work there on crypto stuff. Right. So I'm curious then, because you were saying that when you were at Standard Treasury, you know, this is a group of folks who want to incorporate new access to APIs and new technology to uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, update outdated government systems. <laughs> yeah, or uh, yeah, yeah. So you guys essentially sound like uh, tradfi. Uh, I hate this term, but maxis at the time. 
And so you're meeting with Brian at Coinbase and you get your first Bitcoin. What were your initial mom- um, opinions of cryptocurrency? Was it at odds with kind of the philosophy you had and, and the kind of rails and systems you guys were trying to build in the existing infrastructure? And then on top of the first time you heard about Bitcoin and, and you got it, what was your aha moment? What really clicked? What made you realize that this is the space you want to be in? I was actually sort of intellectually interested in Bitcoin like pretty early and got introduced to it pretty early, probably like 2010, 11, 12, and really should have like gone and bought a bunch of Bitcoin. But for me, it seemed a lot more like a, like what is money kind of experiment. And like you read, you know, read the white paper and I really wasn't thinking of it as something that would become its own economy, which is how I feel now and saw it more as, you know, really a point in a whole line of like, what is digital money and how do we think about changing the system? And by system, I mean like the literal systems (laughs) that we do things like payments. So I think even when I got to know Coinbase a little bit better and got to meet Brian and Fred, you know, this is like 2015, right? So it's still pretty early, you know, and I think that what crypto has become and would become, and I think has the potential to become like still wasn't clear, right? I think it felt a, a lot like, you know, one of the things I like to say is what's interesting about crypto is you know, usually in the history of the world, you build a like a real economy. And I mean that in like the economic sense, and then you build a financial economy. And I think what's interesting about crypto in some ways is we built a financial a pretty robust financial economy, and then we're like backfilling a real economy. And I think that it definitely took me time to see the the potential and the opportunity and like the, I want to spend my life working on this. So in 2015, it really felt a lot like, you know, I don't know exactly the date, but it's like, this is like a Mt. Gox era. This is like before, I guess around, or, you know, like the ETH IPO, like isn't that far in the, the just, you know, and so I think there was a lot of like intellectual stuff happening, but it still felt like trading was the only use case. And that didn't really resonate with me. And then on the aha moment, I'm not sure there was a single aha moment where I was like, oh my God, this is, this is it. You know, I, I think that, you know, I've been converted. I think rather it was a slow accumulation of, I was spending more and more of my time reading about it. I was spending more and more of my time thinking about different protocols and different tokens and like what I want Bitcoin to be. And so, yeah, when we sat down, my co-founder Max and me, and we're the type of friends that like we'd sit down every six months to like think about a new company when that we might found together. And we were a little more serious because we were both like at these moments in our career where we thought we could transition into doing something together. You know, really what we, one of our first, you know, big picture ideas was okay, we think crypto is the future and digital money is, you know, the way to go. And there's going to be so much potential, but that the next 10 years in crypto, and by the way, this is like late 2021, right? Like Thanksgiving 2021 is more meeting to talk about this stuff. And we said, okay, the next 10 years of crypto is going to, the value is going to accrue to people who can deal with regulatory BS. 
So what are some, like, what are business ideas we have at the interface of like regulation land and crypto land? And we recognize in ourselves that like, we're good at the particular type of pain that comes from like regulation land. Anyway, we can talk more about this. But the point is like, I think that it, it wasn't like a sudden jar. It was like, okay, this is more and more interesting. It's more and more of my time. It's more and more of what I'm thinking about. It's more and more what I'm doing. And then like, when we actually came to the moment of like, oh, let's ideate on some ideas. What we ideated was okay. What can we do like at the interface of tradfi and regulation and crypto land? It comes from a very entrepreneurial kind of background that you have, and also your experience in working in political institutions. We could call them maybe civic infrastructure. When I was working as a planner, I've worked at the federal level, the county level, and at the state level. And there's just outdated software at all of these levels. And it's, and it's oh, yeah. almost impossible to get updated because the people at the top who are the ones that can affect the change are not the ones who are in the weeds day in and day out dealing with these outdated systems. So I'm wondering, how did the success of your two previous startups that were kind of the intersection of tech and politics, government, civic duty, whatever you want to call it, how did that factor into your decision to kind of take the leap into providing a traditional multi-hundred-year industry in insurance and bridging that to crypto? Yeah, so I do think that for me, there is this strand of wanting to like affect positive change in the world. And, you know, I think... Obviously, in crypto land, there's a lot of there can be a lot of skepticism that government's a way to do that. But for better or worse, like governments exist, and they'll continue to exist. And for me, there's the two opportunities I had in government service was a lot about it's very hard and the software is terrible. But you know, if you can uh, move that chip, the course of that chip a little bit, it can often have like really big impacts, and you can affect a, a ton of people. So, you know, at the margin, um, I always saw that despite some deep frustrations in those experiences in um, if you do things better, it can, it can really affect people. And then I think my entrepreneurial experience in standard treasury. And now at meanwhile, you know, I think I'm motivated by the same thing, which is if anything, in some ways I, I feel now it's probably easier to do is to like build something new in the world and see it have a positive change. So on the financial infrastructure at standard treasury, for me, that was a lot about, if we can drive the marginal costs of you know a bank account to zero, then lots more people should have bank accounts. And if you can drive the marginal costs of, of payments down, then you know people will do a lot more payments, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think you're absolutely right from before that our framing was definitely like through TradFi. And I think you know with crypto, we have a very similar view. I'm sure we'll get into what we do now. But in some ways, what we do now is we we have a life insurance product that's really for for like high net worth individuals. For I, I, it, the people don't have to be like crypto whales, but the minimum size of our life insurance policy right now is five BTC, right? You know, paid over ten years if you want, but like that's pretty significant, right? So there's not a ton of people in the world who can afford that. But for us, it's all about building that infrastructure, and by that I mean regulatory infrastructure, technical infrastructure, compliance, and risk infrastructure, everything. You know, my ultimate vision is that anyone in the world who, you know, has concerns about currency risk or inflation risk or regime risk, you know, should be able to buy a life insurance policy 
you know, in this digital decentralized, global digital decentralized currency. So that's what like really motivates me in, in the long term, 10, 15, 20 years. It's that the, we think there could be hundreds of millions of users for this and it could really positively affect their lives. Well, or the lives of those around them, I guess, <laughs> in the case of life insurance. And then we have a lot of steps between now and then. Yeah. So I guess kind of like a broader, I want to, I want to talk about some like broader general overview stuff uh, before we dig into the, to the guts of meanwhile. So I guess kind of as we're jumping out of the plane and coming from the 10,000 foot view to the 10 foot view, why use Bitcoin as the current, the digital currency? And then secondly, why meld the insurance realm with the Bitcoin ecosystem? Well, why Bitcoin? I think Obviously, it's the most developed, it's the most mature in many ways. But I think fundamentally, why we started with Bitcoin is, you know, and we're very optimistic, I think I would put it mildly, about the idea that there will be a Bitcoin economy in the future. But fundamentally, to us, Bitcoin looks a lot like, a, you know, it is a store of value. There are all these different things that currencies can be used for. And Bitcoin is the one that looks the most you know, that way, like it's going to be a long-term store of value. And, you know, a whole culture of hodling has developed around that intergenerational wealth transfer. And fundamentally, if you believe all of that, then life insurance makes a lot of sense, right? You know, I think we, for a lot of people, they have in their head that life insurance is, you know, just about what if you die accidentally? And there is a whole class of life insurance products that are like that. The life insurance products that we started with are are called whole life, and I'll, I can explain what that means. But essentially, they're they're more like investments that you're making on behalf of your beneficiaries. They're it's much more like an investment account. So we started with Bitcoin exactly because like that's a whole mentality. That obviously what we're doing has some uh, cross currents with you know, self-sovereignty and pure decentralization in that, like, we are a company and you do send us your Bitcoin. But ultimately, we think there's a real alignment between Bitcoin as a store of value and Bitcoin and life insurance as a as a vehicle um, for Bitcoin. Yeah. And so I think um, I'm not sure if it's maybe just me and, and the signal I'm, I'm reading through the noise on my Twitter feed, which is mostly crypto Twitter folks. But a kind of trend I've been noticing in 2023 is this rise of the narrative of real world assets melding with blockchains. So what's your just general outlook? I mean, obviously, you're building a company that's providing life insurance using the Bitcoin network. So you obviously have a positive outlook on the melding of, of RWAs and, and blockchain technology. But where do you think like the rest of the world is? Where are the cryptocurrency entrepreneurs and where are the traditional decade-long providers of insurance and other RWAs? Where do you think this narrative is going? And, and do you think there's merit to this kind of trend right now? Yeah, look, let me split that into two different parts. And the first is about real-world assets and the other is you know, about, in some ways, the crypto economy. And I think those things are melding together. But I want to say that like, you know, I really believe that when you look out 20, 30, 40 years, and one of the nice things about running an insurance life insurance company is like those are the time frames you get to think on, you know, like 10, 20, 30, 40 years is is just like 
that's what we we need to operate in. Like when I look out that far, I really believe there's going to be a robust global economy, you know, in in Bitcoin and potentially in some other tokens. And and what that means is not just that the real world will have to come to the blockchain, but I think also and Bitcoin, but that Bitcoin in many ways will become more real world like. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is like that Bitcoin will need to be more than like gold in the ground. And the analogy is like you put it on your wallet and you bury it in the backyard and then you just have this, it's gold in the ground. That's what it is, literally in that case. And I believe that Bitcoin has to be money. And like when you read Satoshi's white paper, like it is about like money and movement and payments. And what does that mean? It means that there's going to have to be capital markets in Bitcoin. It means there's going to have to be, you know, lending in Bitcoin. There's going to have to be cash flows in Bitcoin. And I'm definitely in the camp in Bitcoin world, which is much more of like, how do we make this active? How do we make it a thing in the world? And, you know, you can have differing opinions, I think, on ordinals and lightning and stacks and whatever it is in the particular but i'm definitely like if the bitcoin community is split between like people who want those sorts of things to exist and people who don't want those sorts of things to exist i'm definitely in the like i want those things to exist right because like what is a life insurance like a life insurance company is like in those classes of things right and then i think real world assets and tokenization i believe all of that is absolutely going to happen because of the substrates of blockchains are and I, I should really put like blockchains in quotes in some ways like but i think the like substrates of the crypto economy are much better and for a lot of places it, it allows us to to skip some stages in what could be a more gradual evolution and yeah so i think that's all all great and i think it'll be both of those things so both be like assets that exist in the world and turning them, you know, bringing them into crypto land, but also I think crypto land, like coming to the world and then there'll be all a bunch of interactions, right? Like if you start to think of the price of Bitcoin less as the price of Bitcoin, that is like, it is a thing you buy and more as a foreign exchange rate that exists between dollar land and Bitcoin land, then you begin to talk and think more about Bitcoin land as an economy. And you get to talk and think about it more as a thing that should have a yield curve. And you, you know, can start to say like, well, maybe Bitcoin is a, a global sediment layer. And there are things that hang off of that. But all of those, all of that vision is certainly contingent on it being a useful, active thing. And so maybe this is a bit of a softball I'm teeing up for you. <laughs> What does the role of bringing the insurance industry into the Bitcoin ecosystem play? How significant is this? Why is it important? Well, I'm glad you asked, Dylan. Um, <laughs> no, no. So let me just say that like, fundamentally, we do two different things. And that is like the nature of all life insurance companies. So one is that we um, are all insurance companies. The first is like we're in the insurance business, right? And for us... That is really, you know, these are pretty fundamental needs. That is like life insurance is really about like, what if you die before you're supposed to? And how do you take care of your beneficiaries? 
And by the way, annuities are really about like, what if you live longer than you're supposed to and you like need cash flow in the back end? These are really like, and the oldest savings product in the world is actually burial insurance, right? So we think that those sorts of needs are real and they exist in the world. So obviously they should be done in crypto. And it's nice that we have a very like good place to start, which is that Life insurance in the in the U.S. and many other jurisdictions has a very privileged like tax position. So, what our product now is real is you know the value prop for folks is if you were intending to hold your Bitcoin forever anyway, then you know why not or hodl your Bitcoin forever? Like why don't you put it in this like really efficient tax wrapper? And I, I I can explain all all about that. So that's one side of it is like these are fundamental human needs. Like obviously they should happen in crypto land, right? On the other side, actually, insurance companies play this really vital role in the economy. And we don't think of it that way, but like much of the long-term infrastructure in the world is owned by insurance companies because they have they are like permanent capital. They have very long-term perspectives. So one of the things that we are doing is trying to provide and help create longer-term capital markets. So when we insure someone, uh, we are insuring them hopefully for, for decades, right? But there aren't decade-long assets in crypto and in Bitcoin. So we're, um, we're out there every day trying to like push the limits of what's possible vis-a-vis duration, right? So I have conversations with you know, market makers and investment banks in crypto land. And like one of the first things we always say is like, okay, we're trying to look to do something for like locked up for three years or like we want to do a three-year term loan in bitcoin and this is like completely new this is like completely different than like people are used to lending overnight or having structured products overnight you know it's a very like short-term market so i think we see it you know our core mission as this combo of providing life insurance to the world through crypto through bitcoin and then providing life insurance to the bitcoin and crypto world through our company and then on the other hand, being long-term capital, you know, really trying to help build that ecosystem. You brainstormed, meanwhile, with your co-founder in 2021-ish. No, no, very late, very late 2020. Late 2021. Yeah. Uh, and then 2022 happens. Yes. TX collapse, three arrows, capital defunct. I should say that that was all actually much later, right? So we started the company in like the very beginning of the year. I think we were incorporated in January 2022. So we, you know, really left our jobs like February, March, raised capital um, then. And we're sort of off to the races. And then, yeah, I mean, the, the really practical thing is, you know, things were very frothy and hot. And um, we actually, you know, we went to Crypto Bahamas, which was the FTX conference. And to me, that's like the absolute top because it was like the week before Celsius blew up. And we didn't have, we hadn't actually made a lot of like practical progress in our business, but people were, uh, you know, offering us a series A and like, we were literally negotiating potential, you know, additional amount of capital and then Celsius blew up and that sort of that deal blew up, but it didn't actually affect what we did or were doing. Right. You know, I think we, it's my second company. It's my co-founder's third company. You know, we, We've had a plan, you know, to get regulated in Bermuda to have a real life insurance company. We have been very slow and deliberate on hiring. 
so in some ways this all ended up being i don't want to overstate it like we weren't paying attention but it was sort of background noise right like ftx blew up and we were like okay well we still uh, are working on getting our regulatory license in bermuda um you know and obviously we are fortunate that you know a lot of our partner partners and what that i mean the bma our lawyers you know actuarial consultants you know some of them i think have stuck with us uh, in a time when a lot of service providers and regulators have been stepping away from crypto but on a really core fundamental level like we haven't actually done much different than we would have even though it's been the bear so i guess there's two things i want to pull on that thread a just you know your experience with the bma and, and how they're a forward-looking regulatory body especially when it comes to the insurance realm but um, maybe that's in a you can address that secondly and i first want to hear so you're finding that you didn't really run into any negative conversations today as a result of the kind of calamities that existed of 2022 the folks that you're rubbing elbows with uh, maybe because the in insurance industry does take this 30 plus year time frame horizon insurance land is is very skeptical of crypto i will say it's been really interesting though that let me take a step back and just sort of explain how our company works. So we have this um, entity in Bermuda. It's a regulated and licensed life insurance by the uh, company, by the BMA. Uh, and I'll get back to that. And it is entirely denominated in Bitcoin. So what it, that means is when people buy a policy, they pay all their premiums in Bitcoin. When people tragically die and the claims paid out to their beneficiaries, that is in Bitcoin. And everything in between is in Bitcoin. So uh, our what are called our reserves, our solvency calculations, our statutory financials, our audited financials, and our investments are all in Bitcoin. And why we did that and why that's such an interesting and important innovation is that the price of Bitcoin doesn't matter to this company, right? Because the assets and the liabilities, that is like money we're given and the money we pay out are all in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin goes to 35,000 and goes to 60,000, it goes to 15,500. Like none of that matters to us because, you know, that our entire balance sheet moves together or actually we frame it as it doesn't move at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so that is really, or that's just, it's just unique. It's, there's nothing like it in insurance. And what I think has been interesting is when we talk to insurance people and, you know, we have some investors who are some of the biggest life insurance companies in the world, there's definitely a deep skepticism of crypto and there's a deep skepticism that this is all going to work out <laughs> in general, but there's a deep understanding of the, the model we've developed. It makes a lot of sense, right? So we meet actuaries, you know, who don't know anything about crypto, don't own any crypto, don't have any belief in Bitcoin or the crypto economy. And we explain it to them, like how we've structured the company and they nod and say, oh, that makes sense. That's like, that's like the right way to do it. Right. So I think that that's insurance land. Should I talk about the BMA? Yes, please. Uh, yeah. The Bermuda Monetary Authority. Look, you know, I think on a political level, level, uh, Premier Burt, who's a, like, you know, the head of government. In Bermuda, we're very pro crypto. I think the BMA has a very forward looking digital asset business license. You see, uh, Coinbase has put their their offshore entity there. I think a bunch of other big names 
are in the process of getting licensed. Uh, so I think it's a jurisdiction that is very pro-crypto and open to crypto and really thoughtful in thinking through what's unique about crypto businesses and the custody and, and all that stuff. At the same time, they are really a globally renowned premier insurance regulator. And actually, the life insurance business in particular is booming in uh, Bermuda, by which I mean there's a lot of new life insurance companies. You know, they have a whole history of PNC insurance and captives and all of that. So I think that is why we we picked them because of this combo, right? So I think for insurance folks, but even for non-insurance folks, like we can say, like, you know, like Bermuda's the insurance capital of the world. You walk around Hamilton, Bermuda, and you, you see all these big buildings owned by big insurance companies, like they know what they're doing, and other people know that they know what they're doing. And working with them has been, you know, a real collaboration. I don't want to get into the technical nitty gritty details, but like, you know, how you do reserving and what your discount curves are and like how, like what solvency means. Like these are things we had to work at, have had to work out with them and are continuing to work out with them. And that's a real conversation. We approach them. We describe something that I think we were fortunate uh, that they thought made sense. And then they have been working with us you know, month to month to make it all happen. And it is a little more challenging than so in PNC insurance or what in Bermuda is called general business. You know, your contracts usually last a year. So there's a lot more flexibility there, right? If you really screw up your PNC business, you just tell a PNC business to stop and all the contracts will run off in a year. You know, as a life insurer or a long-term insurer, we're entering into contracts that are supposed to last decades, <laughs> you know, until people die. So I think things have certainly been slower than they would have been if we just wanted to do wallet insurance or peg insurance, but it's it's been a really great collaboration. And it took us about a year end to end to get the license, which is actually slower than their normal pace, but I think quite reasonable given the like all that we had to talk through. And then it took us about six months to actually like stand up a fully functioning life insurance company, right? So we. We do know your customer and any money laundering checks and any terrorist financing checks and we do underwriting and we we do reserve like we're I like to tell people like we are running a whole life insurance company with six people and that that is quite a feat and it, it did it took us some time to get that all up and then you know to walk the BMA through it all to make sure that they were comfortable. But again, every step of the way they've been a great a great partner. But I think critically, you know, not someone they're looking to find a way to get to yes, but they aren't just saying yes. And I think that's a contrast with some of the other offshore jurisdictions who really just want the crypto business or want the innovative business and they'll really do anything. I think that they they really want to do things right and they want to work with people to do things right. But that is why working with them is so great because I think all of our users, other regulators can know that they've pressure tested the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you kind of shared the scrutiny that the BMA put Meanwhile under. The other insurance entities that are in the blockchain space that have been on the pod have shared similar kind of experiences with the authority. I want to take a sidestep real quick because, and I know that US regulations and the regulatory battles that are going on right now are adjacent to, if not related at all, yeah. to the kind of regulations you're concerned about. But at ETH Denver earlier this year, a lot of VCs and lawyers were talking about this brain drain of crypto talent that was leaving the US because of regulatory uncertainty. 
And then maybe from a hardcore crypto enthusiast's perspective, we've had a really positive past month in the space. We've had Fidelity and BlackRock filing ETFs. We had the District Court of New York stating that secondary sales of XRP were you know, the programmatic tokens that weren't sold as uh, pre-seed or to institutional investors were deemed as not securities. You know, that's not, you know, written in stone yet, but we've had some positive regulatory news in the past month. What is just from your perspective of somebody who's working alongside various different blockchain and crypto companies in the US, what's just your perspective of the regulatory stance where we're at right now? Because it could go either way. Yeah, look, uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's just been really positive developments in the last month, and there's increased momentum. You know, I think for a lot of folks, I think there's just a feeling that the SEC was a little bit on the warpath and probably overstepped their bounds. And I think what that'll really do is, I hope, get some of the you know moderate Democrats in the House and the Senate sort of off the sidelines to work together to like figure out how to actually have a piece of legislation around uh, crypto regulation. And I think that that's actually, I think the hope for clarity, there'll be increased positive momentum. You know, we'll see what happens in the grayscale case in the coming months. So it's just been great. And the institutional interest is, I think, only going to increase. And that's institutional investors, that's institutions you know, like BlackRock and Fidelity who want to provide user experiences to their customers around crypto. And I think that all of that will just add to this you know, long-term momentum toward building a, a crypto, again, a robust global crypto economy in the future. So as for us, we're really happy to be offshore. Uh, you know, we're looking at ways to potentially start an a life insurance carrier in the U.S. that would be structured in a slightly different way. But, you know, we've worked with a bunch of lawyers and compliance folks to make sure our policies, like, work well for U.S. people and get all the tax benefits of life insurance. So people, you know, who find out about us through a friend or, you know, however they might find out about us, uh, like, they're able to come to us and buy a policy um, if they want, even as a U.S. person. You know, insurance is really weird in that, uh, there is no federal regulation of, of insurance. Anyway, this is going to be the whole thing. Another whole podcast, actually, Congress passed a law that says they won't pass a law around regulating insurance. Uh, it's like a really weird, weird space. So there are some ways that um, you can end up touching securities law and other things. And basically what we've done is to just really design a product that doesn't get anywhere near any of those lines. So we don't have to worry about the SEC. But I think, again, as we think in decades, the important thing is there's bears and bulls. But I think when you look at the long-term trend, you're going to see more more institutional interest and more retail interest in the US and globally. And you know, even though there, there are going to be those waves, like you know, I think it's up and to the right when measured in long enough time frames. Something that is really interesting to me because uh, in the conversation before we started recording, I was telling you how I got into cryptocurrencies, which which was the result of learning about 401ks and, and HSAs and all these tax advantaged kind of retirement accounts. So for somebody who's in the US or maybe for people who are outside the US and just don't understand the types of tax benefits that life insurance policies can have, 
Can you just like explain like I'm five, how that may or may not relate to 401ks, health savings accounts, things of this nature? Yeah. So let me explain what our product is. So our product is called a limited pay whole life product. So whole life means it lasts your whole life there. It's well named. <laughs> so you pay into the, the policy and then, you know, whenever you die, your beneficiaries get paid. So this is in contrast to a lot of people, I think have term life policies that lasts like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Um, so term life, you probably get a much, a really high multiple on what you put in, but it's only if you die, right? And whole life, you're really putting, uh, you know, you're putting your Bitcoin in, in our case, or in dollars into a classic whole life policy. And you're really assured to get them out, right? Because you will eventually die. <laughs> so you get a, a much lower multiple, but it's more like an investment account. And it's limited pay. So what we do is, you know, for tax reasons, you really want to have it so you have it, multiple payments. So you, um, you can pay over 10 years in equal installments. And then we have this thing called a premium deposit account, which people can pay up front. And I can explain sort of why people want to do that. So in general, whole life policies uh, have three benefits and ours is no different. So the first is any accumulation is tax-free. If you, you know, set it up with a trust or it's very particular to people's individual circumstances, but you can you have it so it lands outside your taxable estate. If the estate tax is something um, you're worried about. So just this first thing is like, it's a great way to do intergenerational wealth transfer. You know, it's just a, a good way to have an investment account and get it to your beneficiaries in a really tax efficient way. The second thing is every whole life policy, you know, has a, an investment return within it, right? You don't really frame it that way. So usually, you know, your frame it as like, oh, I'm putting a million dollars in this policy, death benefits $10 million. But at the end of the day, that's turning $1 million into $10 million, right? So there's a, there's a sort of investment return there. In our case, you know, it really depends on your age, it's very particular, how healthy you are. But, you know, you might put in 10 Bitcoin and, and get 20 out, right? So, so there's an investment return like in the product, like you put 10 in, you get 20 out. And the third thing that's really cool about whole life products is um, when the structure, right, as ours is, is you can borrow against the policy tax-free. So there's still this option for liquidity. There's still an option, you know, if you need it to get some Bitcoin out or some um, dollars out in the classic policy. So for us, uh, again, you let's say you put 10 in, uh, the death benefits 20. Basically, you have like a savings account, like a savings value. In classic insurance, it's called the cash surrender value. We actually just call it the surrender value because like, is Bitcoin cash? I mean, we think so, but we, we don't want to get in trouble by calling it cash. And how that works is it's sort of like a savings account that um, you know amortizes over time. Like a, as you own the policy, its value goes up. And what's nice about that is the technical jargon is for a non-MEC, a non-modified endowment contract, but don't worry about that. What it really just means is you can borrow tax-free against the policy, right? And that's really amazing inside this Bitcoin policy, right? So you know, Bitcoin's at 30,000 a day. Uh, you pay your premiums in Bitcoin. You know, in 10 years, 20 years, Bitcoin's at 300,000. You can borrow a Bitcoin from us um, and you could uh, spend it with no tax obligations. And what's nice about that is that you actually never have to pay the loan back because we net out the loan against your death benefit when you die. So we, do, we won't lend you more money than... You know, we won't lend you more Bitcoin than 
could eventually be paid by your death benefit, but it's a way to get liquidity without really worrying about it. The only thing I'll, I'll say though, again, not not people's tax advisors, but you know, it's our understanding that you do pay capital gains going in. So I don't want to over analogize here, but I think for people's mental frame, it's somewhat like a Roth account in that you know you have to put in after tax Bitcoin, right? So you have to pay capital gains in your Bitcoin for buying new Bitcoin. But then you can get this liquidity later that's tax free, or uh, you know, eventually you die and you know, hopefully pass some of your beneficiaries in a tax efficient way. So in that way, you could think of it as like locking in your capital gains basis or you know, saving in a Roth-like way or or um, something like that. Is the structure that you guys have built essentially copy and pasting from the traditional using cash for insurance? Did you guys essentially just bridge that to using Bitcoin? Or are there also other kind of new nuances that you've added to the policy that's a little bit more innovative than the traditional insurance space? It's funny the way you frame that question. It's actually somewhat the opposite, which is that we didn't copy and paste dollar policies because they tend to actually be really complicated. You know, there's just all this history and like interacting with agents and like how things are sold and like you know, you want to say you're getting S&P 500 returns, but it's hedged on the bottom. And like, it's just actually a lot of these insurance products are just really complicated and really unnecessarily complicated. So what we really did is we took a product design that's like out of the 1850s or something, right? It's super simple. Um, and I think that's actually the nice thing about crypto is not that you have to reinvent any of everything, but because you're are reinventing everything, sometimes you can just like have a much simpler, clearer value proposition for folks. So our value prop, I like to use the 10 because you pay in 10 years, right? So you pay one Bitcoin a year for 10 years, you promise your beneficiary is 20. That's really the whole product. I mean, there's all the tax stuff and there's a lot of benefits and blah, 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 but like actually conceptually understanding the product, like that is the simplest whole life product you can imagine, not the most complicated. And where does that additional 10 Bitcoin come from? Is that just from the increasing float that meanwhile is going to aggregate over time? Yeah. So rewinding all the way back to like life insurance companies are this like critical piece of permanent capital in the infrastructure. So what we do is very conservatively, this is like what a lot of our conversation with the BMA is, and our we have an independent board of our insurance company and risk management procedures and an investment committee. Basically, we lend Bitcoin to institutional counterparties for yield. And that scares a lot of people, but our target IRR is quite low. It's about, call it 3%. So we're not trying to do crazy... Yeah, no offense to anyone, you know, 16% DeFi stuff or turn it into wrap Bitcoin and lever it up 10 times and, you know, make directional bets. You know, so what we do is we go to like institutional counterparties. So think like market makers, you know, hedge funds, you know, maybe some miners. We've had trouble finding people we think are credit worthy. And then we're like running a private credit desk. You know, this is not crazy on on chain stuff, although I, I hope. In time, there'll be more and more lending of Bitcoin in like ways that are institutionally suitable. But like we negotiate credit contracts with people, right? Like we're going to 
lend you 100 BTC and you're going to give us three BTC for three years and you're going to pay us back our principal. And then like, where are we in the bankruptcy stack? Like, what is the collateral? Like, how do we perfect the security? It's like real credit operations. And I think that's something that we really want to draw a contrast with. You know, obviously, I think credit has had some uh, hiccups <laughs> over the last uh, year or so. But like, this is, this is very deliberate. And that, that is part of the point is we think there needs to be debt capital markets in Bitcoin. There needs to be lending. And critically, we're trying to push durations out, right? So most lending that happens in Bitcoin and, and the rest of crypto, you're talking about overnight, one month, maybe one year, if you're lucky. We're actually trying to go to people and say, we would like to lend you Bitcoin for three years. And how can you model your cash flows? Like, what can you do with that? How can we have trust or how can we work to get some certainty that you'll pay us back? You'll have that capital do that. Then the other thing is well-regulated by the BMA, like every insurance company, you know, we are essentially posting our own capital, right? So every time we write a policy, like we have to put a little bit of our own capital there. And it's not exactly how insurance people conceive of it, but like in some ways that's first loss capital, right? So if we had some loan go sideways, like our capital is what's going to get hit first, not our our user's capital. And then we would be required to post more capital. So that's what we do. We uh, yield, Bitcoin yield, low risk, low yield to turn 10 into 20 over 40 years. Yeah, I really like the way that you frame creating a more robust and long living Bitcoin economy by locking up these Bitcoin with institutional clients. So I guess kind of the major hurdle then would be, are these institutions that are willing to be counterparties with you, are you starting to hear more and more whispers that they're coming into the ecosystem? Are you finding it easier and easier as time goes on to find folks who are willing to have a three-year time frame? Well, I don't know about easier and easier. What I would say is if you asked me a year ago, I would have said this is the existential threat to the business. The existent not not threat, the existential like bet of the business. This this will exist and it'll work. Where I'm feeling now is like we have a lot more borrower interest than we have capacity. We have a lot more and that's great because we can be really choosy. So we are already in a situation where we're saying no to a bunch of people or, you know, someone approached us and like, you know, I'll pay you 15%. And I'm like, not only does that sound sketchy, but even if it wasn't sketchy, like that's not the risk reward for us, right? Like we're really, we're really just in a different place on the, on the, um, so, you know, we've been talking a little bit internally about maybe doing, you know, something with that skill set, whether it's, looking out and like maybe raising a fund that's like for BTC yield, but, you know, it's more like a private credit fund with some duration. But, you know, I think we're feeling more and more confident that, you know, this part of the business is something that can work now, but it is definitely still a really, it's a long-term bet. Like we believe there will be not only will there need to be a robust Bitcoin economy, but there'll be need to be robust debt capital markets like long into the future. And actually, again, in collaboration with the BMA, what we've done is we've put a sort of like exit clause in our contracts for the first 10 years where we can like give everyone their money, their money back, basically, if these debt capital markets don't exist. And that's really because 
we want to be aligned with our users. We don't want to be in a situation where we're chasing risk to meet our guarantees. The only way we want to run this business is if like the risk reward directly matches up with you know the types of risks that are appropriate for a life insurance company and the types of durations they should have. And yeah, we're seeing more and more positive signs that that's going to work out. But we also, you know, every step of the way, we think that, well, actually, let me just take this comment. I, I think sometimes life insurance can feel there's the old line. It's a thing that's sold. It's not bought. It can feel a little sleazy, maybe, or the way it's sold, the way it's designed. There's a lot of complications. There are riders. There's complexity. There's, there is this like person who's selling you this thing and they're commissioned and Something about the whole thing can feel off for people. And I think one of the reasons that we're so happy to have been able to design a super simple product and to be doing something in a space that's brand new is to have policyholders first. And obviously, I think every life insurance company wants to have their policyholders first in their guarantees. But also, we think that extends to the product design, it extends to the user experience, it extends to everything. And the investments are just one part of that. And it's something that Quite literally, actually, when we talk about our values, which I know sometimes can sound like this really corporate exercise, but it actually does animate us every day that like one of our values is to think in the long term, because like, you know, the obligations and promises we're making are, are super long term and there's just no shortcuts. And that means we're a little slower, you know, than uh, than some others. But I, I think that's the right the right cadence for an insurance company is to be a little slower, but to build for the long term. And the other is um, we frame it as uh, to keep our promises. That's like in a literal sense that like we're making promises to our policyholders, we're making promises to each other, we're making promises to our regulators. But I, I think that that's something that we try to have it, or we are we have as an animating part of our culture that like we keep our commitments, and those two things together we believe are going to allow us to hopefully, honestly, not just build the largest a large life insurance company the largest life insurance company in the crypto economy but you know we have ambitions to like be the largest life insurance company period that's uh an awesome place to wrap up so if anyone's interested in in learning more about you or meanwhile where can they reach you and then secondly who are the types of folks that you're interested in chatting with right now you can learn more at meanwhile.com and the way it works is uh we have a waitlist and you know the waitlist you some demographic questions, you know, just some indication of how big a policy you want, although that's not binding. And then, uh, you know, you sign some disclosure forms that are like, we can make sure you're not a terrorist and, you know, those, those sorts of things. And then every single person who signs up on the wait list, uh, we jump on the phone with, uh, or we ask for a Zoom meeting. And that's because, you know, the product's complicated. People have questions. They want to talk about custody. Uh, they want to talk about the investments. They want to talk about their particular tax situation. And even though we're not their tax advisor, like you can point them to people and give them some indications. So that's really, um, if you want to learn more, you know, you, you can sign up on the website and that's not a commitment to buy. That's really a commitment to, to talk to me <laughs> for better or worse. And what are we looking for? Like, look, our minimum policy size is five BTC paid over 10 years. In Bermuda, it's called sophisticated investors. In the US, you might think of it as accredited. You know, we're only interacting with you know, people who you know have a certain size, and you know, that's again not our permanent ambition. Our ambition is to like figure out how to work with people with uh, smaller, smaller stacks. That's where we're at now. And I'd say that we have two different customers. We have like true 
people with big Bitcoin stacks, Bitcoin whales. That's about half the people so far. The other half are just like people who, you know, we have tech entrepreneurs who were have five Bitcoin and we, you know, we're planning to hodl it. And we have ETH folks who have this side store of value in Bitcoin, you know, a few Bitcoin, and they might want to buy a life insurance policy. So we do sort of split the the customer base into like maybe BTC whales and like everyone else. But actually, again, on the policies we've bound, it's like 50-50. So I think if you're in either of those groups and Bitcoin life insurance sounds interesting to you, you should uh, head to the website. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Zach, and for hopping on the mic. It was really cool to hear about this innovative and yet not so innovative product <laughs> that you guys are, are providing. And I'm definitely looking forward to keeping my ears to the ground and seeing how Meanwhile can expand and plant its roots in this traditional industry and start onboarding new users who never thought about life insurance policies before. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks so much, Dylan. I really appreciate your time. This was a great conversation. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was super cool to chat with someone who formerly worked in the government and policy realm, but parlayed those experiences into building in the digital asset space. It was also really cool to hear Zach's philosophy about the role that the insurance industry can play in amalgamating the Bitcoin economy and making Bitcoin become a multi-decade asset. Also, it was just really interesting to learn more about how using Bitcoin to pay for life insurance can actually help decrease the complexity of the product offering. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.